let's make that kind of easier as we follow along through there. But um, uh, otherwise, uh, we'll just be every week just kind of going th- chronologically through the life of Christ. And so last year, we or last year, last week, it was a long week, uh, we... Uh, <laughs> We, went, we started with uh, the first 30 years of Jesus' uh, life and ministry, and so that brings us up to today, and that's going to be the very beginning of his, uh, his, his ministry. The first seven to eight months is what we're going to be covering today. Now, as we do that, of course, our memory verse is we're going to be following Jesus. Jesus lets us know what it's like to be a disciple and what the expectations are, so it's important for us to make sure we set that into our hearts and minds. So um, if this is your first time doing memory verse, don't worry about it. It's something that's beginning to kind of catch you, gets to you, but uh, everyone else hopefully is starting to sound a little more familiar. Here we go. Just say it along with me. Three, two, one. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Matthew 16, 24. Awesome again. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Matthew 16, 24. Awesome. And last time to test ourselves. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Matthew 16, 24. Oh, you guys make it sound so easy. All right, very good. Well, if you are working on that, uh, on your connection card, there is a Bible memory verse card. Take that off and bring it with you. Like I said before, today we're going to be talking about uh, the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, and then we're going to call that the early Judean ministry. And as you can imagine, later in his three years of ministry, there's a later Judean ministry. But this is the first part where he starts, and uh, we're going to track the timeline of Jesus' life from Passover to Passover. That's one thing that scriptures tell us is when the Passover was, when Jesus celebrated that. That's how we know his, his ministry was three years long. And so today we're going to kind of pick up, starting with that first Passover Jesus spent as, uh, in, as part of his official ministry. Now, uh, we're going to talk about this is his early Judean ministry, and that's a little deceptive because in this first year, Jesus actually, uh, he ministers in three areas in the Holy Land, right? So Galilee, uh, that's where Capernaum is and, and all of that, Nazareth, and that's where he begins. Uh, Samaria, uh, we'll see him actually ministering there a little bit today, and also Judea, which is where the Judean ministry kind of begins, right? So Jesus, in his first year, ministers in all three of those regions, uh, and uh, you would say, well, we would think that he would start in the Galilean ministry, if you can remember where he ended up last week. If last week, he's baptized, he goes up to Cana, goes to that wedding, and he ends up in Capernaum, right? That's where he ends last week. Well, why does he not begin his ministry there? Well, because there's this thing called Passover. And Passover happens to be, well, celebrated everywhere but since you're in the holy land jesus would go and celebrate it in jerusalem and so that's where we're going to pick up the story um this how jesus began his ministry this first galilean uh the first of the early judean ministry is really only recorded in the gospel of john so if you have your bibles let's open them up to john chapter 2 and we're going to be in john chapter 2 3 and 4 today is where we begin now chapter 2 it begins with the wedding at cana so if you want to read about that and what happened there like we were last week that's where we start. And um, at the end of his, his miraculous uh, ministry at Cana, where he turns water into wine, verse 12, it says, And after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and disciples, and they stayed for a few days. So that's where we ended last week. 
So that's where we start. The very next verse, it says, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went to Jerusalem. So if we go back to our map, we'll see that Jesus starts at Capernaum, goes all the way back down to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And this was the first one of his public ministry. Uh, it was AD 27. We'll talk about in a minute how we know that's the date that this was that took place. Uh, but Jesus and his disciples, they travel south. Now the route they took, two possible ones. They might have gone around Samaria or they might have gone right through it. And you'll see why I would say that in today's message, right? Um, so let's talk about that. He goes down to handle Passover in AD 27. Now, Passover is a very important feast in, Jerus- in the Jewish calendar. It's kind of like their independence day. Like pretty soon, we're going to have July 4th, and we're going to celebrate our independence. It's like us as a nation, when we became a people. Passover is the Jewish people celebrating the events that took place that allowed them to become their people. It's when they were set free from the bondage and slavery and all of the stuff from Egypt, right? And God gave them a feast. He gave them a party. He said, here's a party to commemorate this, and it's kind of important that you, uh, you keep this party and, uh, every time. And so when is it celebrated? Well, we have Independence Day on July 4th. Theirs, their independence was more than just a day. Uh, it's basically an eight-day uh, thing. Now, it's celebrated the third week of the first, um, third week, uh, the first month of their calendar, right? So let's look uh, at the Jewish calendar because it's a little different. Now, our calendar starts over here in the winter, right? That's around winter solstice when it's the darkest time of the year. It's when our calendar begins. In the Gregorian calendar, it kind of like our whole mindset. It be, it's all centered around light, right? It begins at the darkest time, right? And then the days get lighter, and at the midpoint of the year, it's the lightest, and then it goes back to darkness, just like our days. If you think about how we, like, when does the day begin? Midnight, the darkest time, right? That's how our whole mindset works, but it's not like that for the, for the Jewish calendar. The Jewish calendar actually has two different starting points. Now, there's the civil calendar, right, which starts uh, in the autumn, right? And so the focus there is what's productivity, right, what's work. So you go from harvest to harvest, right? So that's kind of the focus of, of that calendar. And at that time of year is you have the Day of Atonement and some other things that are in that time of year. But the, uh, the religious calendar is starts in the spring, Right? And so the very first month is Nisan, right? The very first month is how they begin. And so the focus there is how, you know, you have this thing, you go from spring to spring, the focus is life. Isn't that awesome? And just the whole, uh, the way the mentality and the thought of how the calendar and even their days, like the Jewish day begins in the evening, sundown. And so you go from life to life. I just think that is so Awesome. So anyway, you have this, they start their year on the first. Why would they have that as a new year? Well, of course, Passover, celebrating them becoming a people. This is, this is when it begins. It's when they were set free from all of, the, uh, all of the, the tyranny and the slavery and the bondage of, of Egypt. And how, what were the events that took place that led up to that? What are they celebrating? Well, first you have Moses comes and says, let my people go, Right? And Pharaoh's like, no, no, no. And then Moses says, well, God has something to say about that. And so then there's 10 plagues. And through those plagues, Pharaoh is slowly convinced, although his heart gets hardened and slowly doesn't get convinced. But the last plague is the one that finally was like, Pharaoh says, all right, get out of here, right? And all, not just Pharaoh, but all of the people. And that was the plague in which God sent the angel of death. And the angel of death is going to go through and is going to kill all the firstborn in the entire country. 
And the way to be saved, and if you're a firstborn like I am, this is an important thing, right? So take note, is they would take a perfect lamb, and they would slaughter it. And they were to take the blood of that lamb and then put it on the doorposts and over the windows and all of this. So when the angel of death showed up, he would see that house, and he would say, oh, it's under the blood of the lamb. And so the angel of death would pass over that house and so they would be spared the judgment. And the lamb was, became known as the Paschal Lamb. It was, it was the sacrificial lamb that would save the people. And so when Jesus would go down to Jerusalem and they would go and celebrate this, that's, that's what they would do is they would go down and they would celebrate this, this amazing meal. And so they, of course, had the lamb as part of what they ate. There was unleavened bread and all this. And so there's a celebration that begins that reminded them every single year what God had done for them, all right? And so Jesus, uh, or so God commands this meal. He says, this is an important party. It's something that you have to do every year. I don't want you to forget who you are. This is your identity. And so even in like Exodus uh, 12, God says about this. He says, this is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate as a festival of the Lord, a lasting ordinance. God is serious about his parties, right? And he should be. This is something to celebrate, and I think it's so important that they, the people remembered where they began. They remembered who they were, and as a people, their very foundation was God's grace as well as his redemption. Isn't it important that we go back to those times and remember? And so this meal is still celebrated today, right? A, a lasting ordinance from year to year. And so when we, have the, uh, uh, when we have Jesus now going down to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, we remember what, uh, what, what John said about him, the, the, uh, John the Baptist. He says, behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, right? And that's what it says in John 1.29. When John saw Jesus, he saw that, yes, he is God and he is Messiah, but John the Baptist also saw Jesus and said he's something also that he is the sacrificial lamb. He is the paschal lamb. He's going to take away the sins of the world. He's, what's going, to, he's going to cover us from his blood from God's judgment. Well, that was very prophetic. And so now we have Jesus going down into Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And he goes, of course, one of the things they have to do is they have to buy a perfect lamb. And, of course, uh, this is a very big tourist time in Jerusalem. We have, you know, we'd have families from all over Israel would be coming in there. And most of them don't carry their own perfect lambs all of the time. They've got to go buy them, right? So where do they buy them? They're going to go to the temple, right? This is their, so there's a business that has, begins to crop up there. And so they would go to the temple and they would buy these these lambs, right, and, and other, there was all other kinds of, of animals that needed to be sacrificed for all of the different ritual things that were in the law. And in order to buy those, you know, they didn't want to spend unholy money, you know, Caesar's money, that Caesar's face on it to buy these holy things. And so there'd be money changers also in the temple who would then change out the money and then they could use the holy money to buy the holy animal that then they would sacrifice, so Jesus goes to the temple as part of, of what's happening there. We pick up the story in verse 14 as he's there, uh, shows up in Jerusalem for this. And it says, In the temple courts he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and other sitting at tables exchanging money. 
So he made a whip out of cords and drove them all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Now, that's, uh, that's pretty extreme. And it's not the gentle Jesus that a lot of times that we think about. But he was very, very angry at uh, what he saw there. Right? And why was he angry? Well, I think that what we find is that uh, he saw something in the temple that shouldn't have been there. And so Jesus begins before they celebrate this holy feast and them as a people by cleaning things out. In fact, Jesus does this twice. He cleanses the temple two different times. Right? And that's pretty uh, amazing. And uh, what was Jesus so mad about? Well, look at that next verse there. It says, uh, verse 16, to those who sold doves, he says, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. And then his disciples remembered, and that is right, and that zeal for your house will consume me. It was a prophecy, obviously, of God that this would be the nature and the character of the Messiah. But Jesus was mad, not that they were, there was animals and stuff to be sacrificed. That's fine. He was mad that they had, there was profiteering going on in God's house. There was profiteering going on in God's name. That these tourists were going, and can you imagine that some places would have tourists come in and then they would jack up prices for things to make, take advantage of the tourists? I know, shocking. <laughs> right? and, it, and, and Jesus was, I think, f- furious that there were those that were turning something holy to God into uh, something that they could manipulate and abuse for their own profit. And he's like, this is not what it's about. It's not about abusing God's people who are pious and wanting to honor him to just skim a little bit extra off the top of these things. It took the focus off the wrong thing. The heart was wrong. And so he put an end to it. And he did so pretty decisively. And it's important for us as God's people to think of that. Right? To remember that we need to keep God's holy things holy things and so jesus he he does he uh he takes a makes a whip and right and gets those cattle out of there and knocks over the coin changers and all this and of course that cried a little bit of a stir there were some people there they're like who is this guy and what does he think he's doing what gives him the right to do this and so they go up to him and they say what gives you the right to do this? We demand a sign. If you really this, if you have the authority to do this, you must be like some holy prophet or something like that. So give us a sign so that we will know. And this is Jesus' reply. It's in verse 19, which you get to it. And Jesus answered them. He says, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days, which is kind of a funny reply, right? When, and so you look about what they were thinking in their mind. This is Herod's temple as an artist's rendition because it's been destroyed. Okay? It was massive, beautiful, ancient wonder of the world, right? And so understand, this wasn't the first temple. The first temple that Solomon built, uh, he built it um, way early on, was it 832 BC is when he began. Took him like seven years, I think, to construct it. It was built with all the best materials and all of that kind of stuff. And then it stayed there until around 586 B.C. when it was destroyed, the Babylonians, and they carried things off as part of God's judgment. So then the temple was destroyed. And there was this period of time in which there was no temple, but then God brought, probably because of his promise, brought his people back to the land, right? So Babylon fell, Persia came to power, 
then we see that God sends his people back and they build a second temple and really under the, the began under the work of Ezra. And we read about that in scripture, Nehemiah, right? And so that was around 516. And it took till around 521 BC for it to be finished, right? And it was a much more humble temple. It didn't have as much riches and stuff because the people, the Israelites, didn't have as many nice things, but it was still the place that God met with his people. It's a holy place. And that was a temple that continued to last and, and, and was there that was still standing in Jesus' day. Well, there was this guy who eventually became power in, in Judea, right? And uh, his name was Herod, right? And it was Herod the Great. And the reason they called him great is because he was a really great builder, and he was. As far as an architect building things, I mean, he did some amazing stuff. The problem with Herod, amongst many, is that he was from Idumea, right? Which, as you can see on this map, if you remember, is kind of south of the Holy Land. So you have the king of the Jews is not even really a Jew, and so what is he going to do? He wants to make sure that the people like him, so he's got these building abilities, What's the thing that will make all the people who would say, well, you're not really one of us, you're an unrighteous, awful person or whatever, what is he going to do? He's going to use his building ability and the wealth and the power that he accumulated under the, the authority of Rome, and he doubles the size of the, of the second temple. And it, it's 1.55 million square feet is what the size is that he brings it to. If you think about the size of that, it's massive. And if you go to Israel, you'll see some of the rocks and things that he had put into space on this is mind-boggling, the work, the engineer that he did. But he didn't just make it bigger, he made it more grand, right? He added porticos and porches and things like this, and the architecture was supposed to be just a thing of beauty. Now, it took a long time, even with Rome's might and all of that wealth, in order to make this temple. And and so it took them, uh, what, 64 years or or, uh, even longer? It took them a long time to build it. All right, and so the work began in uh, 19 BC, and I think it was done actually in 64 AD. So uh, that's a long time before it was finally done, which is kind of hilarious because they got it done, and then in 70 AD it was destroyed. But they have all of these years. So in 19 BC is when Herod started building this. Now, when Jesus says, "Knock down this temple, and I will rebuild it in three days," for starters, it's still being built, and it's already massive. Right? And they're thinking, one, we're not going to do that. But two, there's no way you as a single man are going to be able to rebuild this temple in three days. That is ridiculous. Right? So that's what they're thinking. And so this is what they say. They say they replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? So they'd already been working on it for 46 years. 46 years. And it wasn't just one guy. It was a lot of guys that we're working on this. And so that's how we know that the date of this was AD 27 because it started in 19 BC. They've been working on it for 46 years. The math leads us to the 27 AD. That's how we know that's kind of a cool little thing that the scripture shows us so we can pinpoint where times and events and things took place in scripture. So that's where it's in there. Verses 21, 22 uh, says here, but the temple, this is what Jesus was talking about, was his body. And after he raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he said. Then they believed scripture as the words of Jesus had been spoken. All right, so Jesus does this amazing thing. It's, he knows they're not going to knock down the temple. But he talks about the real temple. What was the purpose of the temple? Remember we did that series not very long ago that talked about the temple and that you're the temple of God, right? Well, the temple is a place where God meets his people. It's a place where, that he says, this is where we can meet. We're going to parlay right here. 
This is where, where an unholy people can meet a holy God. A sinful people can meet a perfect God. And we can find terms of, of relationship and to come back to him. The temple is evidence that there is still hope for us. Right? It's where, it's where God's, in order for that to happen, it's where God's holiness and his goodness, his spirit has to rest. And Jesus now says something amazing, although they didn't understand it at the time. He says, this temple, this big building that Herod's building, is not the place where, where men will come back to God. He called himself to be the temple. The one where humans, the humanity can come back to God. And was Jesus, did he, was he qualified for that? Yeah. Uh, he was man, he's also God. But also you remember when he was baptized, the Holy Spirit rested upon him. And then after he ascended, he did this amazing thing. It's the temple switched from Christ to us. As the Holy Spirit on Pentecost came and filled the church. And the church now, that was the memory verse. Or, oh, you don't remember it, I'll just put it on the screen. It's like, God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. Think how profound this is. So the temple is where God invites us to meet him. And Jesus at that time was there so humanity could meet God. That was one of the purposes of Christ's arrival. God revealing himself to us so we would know who he is. So, in the first Passover, there's so much, it's so poetic. You have the Paschal Lamb himself going down to, to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. To, to declare a new independence, a new identity, a new people. You have the temple himself going and cleansing the temple. It is remarkable. And this is just how he begins. And so then we've, we have in the next couple of verses where Jesus then he does these miracles, right? There's the Passover and he goes and he celebrates it there. And then uh, verses 23 to 25, it says, while he was in Jerusalem at Passover festival, many saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name, right? He was already beginning to do his miracles there. He was beginning to show the evidence that he was exactly, he gave them their signs that they were looking for. But notice this next thing it says, uh, that, that he did all that stuff, but, he did, um, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them, for he knew, uh, he knew all people. And he did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. So even though he was doing these things, he hadn't quite revealed fully his purpose and his identity yet. But he was there beginning, and the reason he didn't reveal himself yet is because he knew the people couldn't handle it yet. Isn't that cool about God? Is that he throttles himself and limits himself and reveals himself gently. And he doesn't need us to explain himself, ourselves to him. He understands us already. Yeah. Well, while the masses wouldn't have understood Jesus, wouldn't have got who he was, wouldn't have understood the Paschal Lamb was now in town to celebrate the beginning of birth of a whole new people, they wouldn't have got that. There was a wise individual by the name of Nicodemus who was in town. And he begins to meet with him. And that is that story begins in chapter 3. And so in chapter 3, we find this Nicodemus. And Nicodemus, we find, was part of the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin was a group of about 71. It's called the Great Sanhedrin, by the way. There was smaller ones. Sanhedrin was basically the, uh, the, the judges over the different cities. So if you had a city and you had so it was the elders and all of this, and they, what they judged is that they made sure that the law was applied, Right? And so the great Sanhedrin was like the supreme court over all of Israel, all of the Holy Land. 
And there were 71 of these guys, and they sat there. It was a very important thing, and they would meet every day except for on Sabbath and on holidays. And they met every day, and they judged over Israel. These were very powerful people. And their scope, their authority, their jurisdiction was over the law. They couldn't judge over the Roman law. They judged over the religious law. This was their thing. And the religious law applied to, to Jewish people, people who were biologically born into the tribe. Well, this guy shows up and he sees Jesus. Why the Sanhedrin would have been in town. They would have created a little bit of a commotion. They would have noticed that Jesus knocked over money changers and, and cast out things. They, they would have taken notice that this was the guy that John the Baptist was saying, behold, is the Lamb of God. This is the Messiah. They would have understood that. They would have taken notice of the fact that he was doing miracles in the town. And so they send Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes out and he wants to investigate. But he doesn't want to validate Jesus' ministry quite yet. Why? Because Jesus wasn't the first guy to show up in town to say, I'm the Messiah. In fact, you go back in the land, there was not very long ago, before Jesus came, there was a different guy who came into town and says, I'm the Messiah, and he tries to do this, this holy raid against Jerusalem, and all his disciples get killed and all this kind of stuff. It was ugly. And that happened common because the Jewish people hated Rome. And they all thought of themselves, common times, and some probably who had some mental illness, thought of themselves as like the Maccabees or something like this that would come in and would free Israel from you know, the tyranny of Rome. And so it wasn't uncommon to have somebody that would have these kind of things, right? That would say, hey, I'm, gonna, I'm here, I'm the Messiah and all this. So we find Nicodemus showing discretion. He shows up at night. And he has a conversation with Jesus. He's trying to figure out who is this guy? And so in verse 2, it says, uh, He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. It's important to understand that even the Jewish council, even at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, recognized that there was something divine about Christ. That he was doing miracles, right? This is not like hearsay stuff. Even those who, who were skeptics said, we cannot deny that blind people can see, lame people can walk, deaf people can hear. <laughs> it's obvious. Who are you? And Jesus replies to him, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. What an interesting way to answer that. Because Jesus doesn't answer directly saying this is who I am. He says this is the effect. You want to be part of God's kingdom. Now remember who Jesus is talking to. He's talking to Nicodemus, a a Supreme Court justice over the the people of Israel. And how did you get the people of Israel? You had to be born into the tribe. You had to be circumcised. You had to be part of the law. And Jesus says, there's now a new law. You have to be born again. There is a new tribe, a new jurisdiction, a new way of living. And if you want to be part of God's kingdom, there's a whole new way about it. Now, Nicodemus is thinking, this is crazy. How can a person be born again? You climb up to your mother's womb again. He even asked the question. And Jesus is like, oh, like complete facepalm. He's like, you're a leader of all these people, and you can't get this. I'm talking about spiritual things. You can be born physically in Israel, but, but spiritual things are born of the Spirit. And so he teaches that his kingdom is not based upon biology but it is based upon faith it's a spiritual kingdom that he is building and it's going to be one that's going to be higher it's not just physical laws but but a whole new spiritual law that we get to be born into 
And then Jesus says, of course, the very famous words, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, some teachers say, well, that wasn't Jesus' words. That was John who was then writing afterwards. It doesn't matter because all of these are inspired by the Holy Spirit. Whoever said it was God who said this, and he teaches this about Jesus because this goes down to his identity. Who is he? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Unique, unlike anybody else. And he came that who would ever believe in him wouldn't perish, right? And he's talking about becoming this new people. This is how we are born again. And so a new life is birthed through belief. And so Jesus is Savior and he is God. Meanwhile, though, we find in the story that John the Baptist is still out in the field, right? And he's, uh, he's out there, it's chapter 3, and, and he's out discipling and baptizing people. And Jesus, by the way, uh, takes his disciples during this time, and they start dis- um, baptizing people too. And John makes a big point of this, that Jesus wasn't baptizing anyone his disciples were. But regardless, he's down there and baptizing people, and now more people are going to be baptized by Jesus' group than by John the Baptist. And John the Baptist at the time was the big show in town. And so his disciples are like, wait a second, there's an interloper. We started this whole baptism thing, and now Jesus and his guys are doing it, and they're getting big. And John says, hey, 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 I told you this is what was going to happen. It's supposed to be this way. And John said, I'm the messenger. Right? The Messiah has come. And John says something phenomenal. He says this, he must become greater, and I must become less. Now, we read that in a light way, but I want you to understand, if you started like a hamburger business, and it becomes like the biggest hamburger business, and then another one opens up and becomes like the biggest, even bigger than yours, and is competing, and you're like, you know what? I was just setting you guys up for real hamburgers, but those are the real hamburgers, and they got to succeed, and we got to, you know, close up shop. That would be hard, wouldn't it? Your whole identity, everything wrapped up into it. How often, even in our own ministries, our own lives? Do we get jealous of other Christians because of the work that they are doing? John shows remarkable understanding and the perspective of what God was doing. I mean, John was a superstar in the kingdom. Everybody, everybody in the land knew John. Now John's like, my ministry, this was all about getting Jesus there. I got to get less. Now, John wasn't an old guy. He wasn't getting to retire. He's only 30 years old, getting into his prime. And he tells his disciples, that's where it is at. Jesus is really the Messiah. Notice the lack of pride. Notice that he's not threatened by God's kingdom, even though personally it was costing him his own ministry, his own identity, everything that he had lived his life up for this point. That just shows us there's just not room for competition in the kingdom of God. Right? We're not the only show in town. God's Holy Spirit resides in a lot of churches. It's fantastic. And we should celebrate whenever God's spirit moves, wherever God's spirit moves, because when the kingdom of God grows, we're part of that kingdom. That's a great thing. And this is what John shows. So Jesus, of course, has that. And then uh, after he's uh, affirmed by, uh, by John the Baptist, the Passover, of course, has ended. And so Jesus goes back up to, towards Galilee, and uh, he ends up in Samaria, and that's John 4. And so Jerusalem has got to go through Samaria to get there. Of course, they didn't like being in the Samaritans, right? They didn't want to be there. But about halfway through, they end up at this little town called Sychar. It's a place where it had a well there that was dug by uh, 
uh, Jacob that was there, one of the patriarchs, and, and dug that well. And so the, the Samaritans had this place of great significance. And Jesus shows up there, and it's a hot day, and everybody's, you know, going to, he tends his disciples into town to go get, you know, some Snickers bars and things like that, get some food. And he's sitting there by the well in the middle of the day. And normally you don't draw water in the middle of the day because it's hot, right? But there's this woman there, and she's drawing water. And so Jesus has a conversation for, with her. And we read that conversation uh, starting in uh, verse 7. It says, When the Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? Because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, Well, if you knew the gift of God who is... Uh, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us as well and drank from it himself as did his sons and livestock? And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become a, in them a spring of water, welling up for eternal life. And the woman said, well, sir, then give me this water so that I don't have to get thirsty and have to come back here and draw water. And he told her, go call your husband to come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you, uh, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation comes from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah, that is Christ, is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with the woman but no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman came back to the town and told the people, come and see the man who told me everything I ever did. Come see the, the Messiah. And then they went out of the town and they made their way, way toward him. That's amazing. Isn't that a beautiful story? Now, there's a lot of things that we find in that story that are, I think are, are significant. There are three major barriers that would have kept, should have kept that conversation to ever even happening. First one is that, of course, she picked up on this, that Jesus is a Jew and she's a Samaritan. They're not, they don't like each other. Another one, she says, and I'm a Samaritan woman. She's picking up the fact that, that he's a man and she's a woman and they're alone. And that just culturally was a big no-no. And the other part that Jesus picks up later, she recognizes that he's holy and she is sinful. And so you have these barriers that normally we just don't associate with, with these groups. And Jesus breaks through all three of them so casually just by asking for a drink of water. And notice how he does this. He starts with the practical. He starts with water. That's something that they both understood, and they're both thirsty. And it piques her curiosity, doesn't it? 
He's like, and I'm sure she was very skeptical. If you would have asked me, I'll give you water, you wouldn't have to drink again. And, if I, and she's like, you don't even have something to draw with, and this well's deep. Come on. And then she's like, but all right, give me this water if you have it, so I don't have to drink again. Right? He starts with what is practical, but he moves it to the personal. He says, go and get your husband. He knew she didn't have a husband, clearly. But he used that conversation, and it turned something personal. And it made it personal for her. And he reveals, yeah, you're right. You don't have, you've had five husbands. The one you're with is not really your husband now. And then he turns it into the spiritual. The, the deeper questions began to be asked. She says, okay, now I'm a little, they're taking this serious because you knew all everything I've done. You're a prophet. So who's right, us or the Jews? And Jesus said, I'm right. I'm the living water. I'm the one that's going to give you eternal life. I'm the Messiah. I've come. It's a great model that Jesus teaches us that you have to see people where they are. You have to talk to them where they're at. At some point, conversations have to stop being superficial and we have to start talking about real life. And the time comes that we can point people to Jesus. And notice the impact that this woman who should have never talked to Jesus would have every reason to hate him brings the whole town out to see him. That's pretty cool. Well, the whole town comes out. They see Jesus. They talk to him. And then eventually they say, now we believe because of what he's done, not because you told us. I don't think it's cool, too, that in that culture, you, you wouldn't normally listen to a woman's testimony. It was not considered credible. That was just the time period it was. And Jesus, over and over again, has women testify about him. Over and over again. It's not the messenger that matters. I know so many of us, we think of our, in our, our faith, how could God use me? God can use anything. It's not you that matters so much as the message. It, 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 you're, not the, you're not the main point. It's who you're pointing to that matters. And he can use anybody. All right, so here we have the first little bit. Jesus stays there, and then he goes up in the, to Galilee. So we're going to start next week. Here's some things that I want to pick up from this. First one is Jesus is our Paschal Lamb. Jesus came to cover our sin. He saves us from God's wrath. He sacrificed himself on our behalf. That's the whole point of him coming on the cross, right? He died so that God's wrath would pass over you and me. One of the things that we have to pick up in Jesus, if we want to be his followers, we have to deny ourselves and pick up our cross and follow him. We have to recognize in denying ourselves, sometimes deny ourselves the judgment that we put on ourselves for our past mistakes. We take responsibility, but we also find refuge in Jesus. I don't know all the things that you may have done in your past that have messed things up. I'll tell you this. There's a paschal lamb that, that has shed his blood that God's mercy now covers you if you are in Christ. That you are born again. There is a new identity that God has over you. Part of denying yourself is denying all the things that you have, that junk that stands between you and God. All the stuff that the devil brings up that tells you you're just not good enough, you're not loved, that is not true. That Jesus has come because in Jesus, you have mercy. Which means that no matter how bad things have been, no matter how broken you are, you can go to Christ and you will not find judgment. In fact, Jesus said, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So in the deepest and the darkest and the hardest times, when you're most broken and you're most afraid and you feel most unworthy, recognize that you are not saving you. 
It is Christ and he has come. The Lamb of God has come. And you find mercy in him. So come to him. The second thing we find in this is that Jesus is our Savior, God. It's what he told Nicodemus, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. One unique, only one. He is God the Son. He's part of the Trinity. His God showed up for us. It's not just he's a Paschal lamb and then died and then there's no one to rescue us from ourselves. He is the God who can remake us. He is the God who birthed you in this life. He chose your parents, your time, right? You're who you are because God crafted you, formed you intricately. And it's that very same God is the only one who can rebirth you again. He can remake you. So no matter who you were, God now gives you a new identity in Christ. You are born again. And he can do that because he is God. So in Jesus, I want you to hear this. You have hope. I don't care the way the world looks. Do you think that humans or demons could fully hijack everything from God? Do you think that we're going to thwart his good plans in this world or in your life? That God says and he promised if we are his, he's working all these things together for our good. That God is at work right now in the joys and in the pains. And he's working about something that leads to our perfection. So we can be prepared and to live forever with him in his unmitigated goodness. You have hope. There may be sins inside, brokenness, pain that you feel like I can never get through. God never said the world was going to be something you could conquer on your own. But he's promised he's going to conquer it in you and through you. He's even called you more than an overcomer. And he's never going to leave you or forsake you. So understand this. Our Savior, God, has come. And he has the strength and the ability to actually do the saving. And the last thing we find here is that what the woman at the well discovered is Jesus is our water of life. Right? Understand this. That Jesus revealed himself as a fountain, not a flood. You, know, you see a fountain and all of the beautiful things that grow around it. Right? And the trees and the plants and the flowers and, and, and the birds and everything finds life there in a flood. There's just death and destruction. Jesus could have revealed himself. He could have come into this world as a flood to destroy all the wicked. But he didn't. He revealed himself even in this as a fountain of life. And one that's never going to go dry. There's never a drought in the soul of the believer. That God will continue to grow life in you and through you and from you. It will bubble up to the point that others will be blessed as well. Understand that if you're trying to find life and purpose and meaning in your job or in a hobby or in your health or in your looks or anything else, all of those things will dry up eventually. But in Jesus, you have life. And so... How do we apply this? Well, the first thing, if you take your connection card out, I've got some things, some next steps for you. The first thing you can do is memorize Matthew 16, 24. We want to be disciples of Jesus. Remember that you're going to have to take up your cross, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. That's so important. And sometimes what we have to deny ourselves from are the very things that are hurting us the most. So follow him. Something you might want to do this week is, is read some of the scripture. So read John chapters 2 through 4, what we went through today. I paraphrased a lot of it. Read the word. And maybe something you commit to this week is pray for 
forgiveness. But go to God and, and know that his hand of mercy is outstretched to you. And he wants to, desires to heal you and to forgive you and to redeem you and to restore you. So go to him. No more shame, no more hiding from the God who came to us. So maybe this week it's an opportunity to go, and I'm just giving you permission. Go and pray for forgiveness. Receive it from him first. Something else you might want to do, and this kind of wraps up this, I call it a five-by-five-by-five five five challenge. It's so easy, but it's so powerful. He's the water of life. We want to go and we want to connect and tap into that. So I would say five days a week. You want to start to this week, just five days, right? So you get two days off, right? Five days, I challenge you. Would you read just five minutes in Scripture to go and to hear from his word? And then after that, would you pray for five minutes? You can even set it on your little timer. And you could say, God, I have an appointment next, but right now, I want to meet with you. The God of the universe will begin to meet with you. This is so key and fundamental. If you're like, I don't even know what I pray about. Well, there's on the back of that yellow sheet, there's things to pray about every day of the week if you want to. I encourage all of us to do that, but talk to God. Just tell him what you thought about what he read, and you're like, well, that's confusing, I don't know. And if you don't know what to read, how about start with John 2 through 4? That would give you something to start with this week. But can you begin by meeting with the God who came to be our temple? All right. Hopefully I've given you all something to do. At the end of this message, please take those connection cards with your commitments, your prayer requests, uh, and your tithes. Drop them in that back box in the back of the room. I'd appreciate it. Let me pray a blessing over us, and we'll, uh, we will then uh, lead us out with a good ta- a song of commitment. So let's pray. Father God, we do pray a blessing over this congregation. You came, Father, to des- not to destroy us, but to save us. And not just to forgive us, but to redeem us, to remake us, to make us a new people. Father, I pray that that newness, that life of Christ, the living water, would grow within us and bubble through us, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would bring life to the the dead parts of our lives. That you would bring healing and forgiveness to the parts that we once had shame. God, that you would bring redemption and and you would bring purpose to the parts of our lives that in the past we might have been, uh, Lord, uh, hiding from from you and from others. But Lord, use those things to bring you glory. Lord, we turn to you for our salvation. We turn to you for our forgiveness. We find mercy in you and we find hope in you and we find life in you. So Father, I pray this week as we keep our commitments, as as we take steps after you, Lord, that that's exactly what we will find. Is we're going to find this hope and this purpose in this life. And we pray all of these things in the beautiful name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.